The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. I actually remember one of the first Sundays that Charlie and Inko, his wife, came to ICC and uh, got in a rather involved conversation with him, um, realized very quickly what a deep thinker he was, and ended up in a pretty deep philosophical, I think, conversation with him. And uh, even from the very earliest conversation with Charlie, he was so open about um, and honest about sharing about how God had rescued him from such a broken past. And really, you know, he would periodically over the course of getting to know him would say things like, you know, I was not a good man, you know, I was not a good guy. And, um, you know, the problem is I never knew the old Charlie, you know. I only knew the new Charlie. Uh, And the guy seemed so gentle, so humble, so hungry for God. And it was hard to believe that Charlie had been any other kind of person than the person that I saw standing before me that day. But I think that speaks to the power of God to rescue sinners like Charlie, like myself, like everyone that's in this room. I think the truth is, if we could really see the before picture that many of us live, we would come to realize the places that each of us had been rescued from in our lives. That we weren't all cut from the same cloth. The truth is that for many of us, we have been on a rather dark journey. We've been to places that we would probably prefer to forget about. And yet somewhere in that journey, God rescued us. Last Sunday, I shared about how the core of the Christian message is the good news of what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And I said that the word gospel literally means good news or news that brings us joy. It's so easy to lose sight of this truth, reducing Christianity to nothing more than a set of rules that we're expected to obey, or even a life philosophy that can improve our life in some way. But as we celebrate Easter this day, it is an essential reminder to all of us that we celebrate a risen Savior. And through His victory over power and death, He gives us His resurrection life to everyone who believes. In my message this morning, I want to read Luke's account of the events that folded on the very first Easter 2,000 years ago. In Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 24, we find this record. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. When they remembered his words, uh, when uh, when 
when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you, the on- are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. What I find so interesting in these events recorded in Luke 24 is the utter cluelessness of Jesus' followers who are trying to make sense of this empty tomb. That was discovered. When these women report to the 11 disciples what they had witnessed at Jesus' tomb, it's interesting that they don't believe their testimony. In fact, they say these women are speaking nonsense. You can almost hear the male chauvinism in their breath, can't you? These hysterical women, what do women know? They must be overreacting to a situation that they don't understand. But there must have been something compelling about that testimony because it's enough to get Peter to run to the tomb and investigate the situation for himself. Luke doesn't give us this detail, but John tells us this added information that he also ran with Peter. It's kind of interesting that he wants to be sure that they know that he was there too. In fact, John tells us they get into a little foot race to see who could get to the tomb first. And in John chapter 20, verse 4, it says, Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. This is saying, I won that race. I got there before Peter. So John and Peter get to the tomb, and they find it just like the women reported. The stone rolled away, and the linens used to wrap the corpse of Jesus lying there on the floor, but there is no body. But even then, Peter is still totally confused. He has no idea what is happening, what he is witnessing. You can imagine the wheels turning in Peter's head. What in the world is going on here? Where is Jesus' body? 
Who in the world would have taken it? Was it the Romans? The Jewish leaders? Despite what the angels had told these women earlier that morning, Peter is still not at a place to readily believe that Jesus was risen from the dead. I think it's this kind of honest, even embarrassing detail that is recorded throughout the Gospels that gives credibility to these accounts that these things really happened. C.S. Lewis says, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know that not one of them is like this. Of the gospel texts, there are only two views. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, or else some unknown writer in the second century, without knowing predecessors or successors, with no, without known predecessors or successors, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. If it is untrue, it must be narrative of that kind. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. What, what Lewis is saying is, is this. He was an Oxford professor of ancient literature. He says, I know this stuff inside out. I have, I have more than PhDs in this stuff. And he says, in those ancient days, all you really get are myths and legends. And when you read those stories, it's very obvious that this stuff is fictional because these characters are larger-than-life heroes that are almost like play-acting, saying all of the right things and responding in all the right ways. But he says, when you read the Gospels, they don't read like that. They have this air of authenticity that even is at the point of embarrassment of the people that they're talking about. In other words, the argument is this. If you're going to start a religious movement and you want it to gain traction, do you really want to cast the leaders of that movement in this negative light? Wouldn't you want to cast them in the most positive light possible if it was just a novel? If it was just a narrative. But when Lewis reads this stuff, he says, this stuff reads like eyewitness accounts. Like somebody was really there and just telling you like it was. And the truth is, this Peter, this rock, this, this person that would take up the mantle of leadership in the church, when he first went to the tomb, he didn't believe it. He looked and he said, who took the body? Where is this Jesus? Later, that same day, Jesus himself would appear to a couple of disciples who were walking on a road to the village of Emmaus. But we're told that they were kept from recognizing his identity. And these two guys demonstrate the same cluelessness as the original 11 disciples. And what, in the course of this conversation, they tell Jesus in verses 20 to 21 reveals the whole problem of why there was so much confusion. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. You see, the disciples couldn't understand the cross and the resurrection of their master because they didn't understand the salvation Jesus had come to accomplish. You see... They thought that their Savior would come to save them from the Romans. 
Their view of salvation was only through the lens of political and military victory. It's sort of like what's happening in America in this past year as we're in another election cycle, right? It feels like it pretty much comes down to this. The hope for the future of America rests in either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. And God help us all if that really is true. Right? I mean, this is the season we're in, right? This political season. Who is going to rescue America? But Jesus said, I didn't come to beat up on the Romans. I came here to save you from yourself, from the guilt of your own sin. Later that same evening, Jesus would appear to the 11 disciples in Luke 24, verse 46 to 47. And it says, he told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. As Jesus pointed out to his disciples, the core message of his death and resurrection was a message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. In other words, what Jesus was saying is, your biggest problem in your life is not other people. It's not the situation out there. Your biggest problem in your life is right here inside, in your own heart. The sin within yourself. And that's what I came to this earth to accomplish. Walter Wongren says this, In mirrors, I see myself. But in mirrors made of glass and silver, I never see the whole of myself. I see the me I want to see, and I ignore the rest. I've, I've commented on this phenomenon before here at ICC. You know, it's this weirdest phenomenon. But when you look in a mirror, you don't actually really see yourself. You, you think that you're looking at an honest, objective image of yourself in that mirror. But the truth is, so great is our self-deception that you actually see an interpretation of yourself in that mirror. And you know, you know the truth, right? There are some mirrors that make you look bad and other mirrors that look good, right? And you only look at yourself in those good mirrors, right? Because the lighting is just right. And just observe someone looking in a mirror. They'll always turn their face in a particular way. Why? Because they only like looking at themselves at that angle, right? That angle that flatters them. And you know this is true because when you see yourself in a photo, it's often shocking, isn't it? It's surprising. As an amateur photographer, I've described this phenomenon very, uh, a number of times here at ICC. If I take a picture, if I take 10 pictures of you, what I've come to discover is you will hate nine of them and only find one of them worthy to post on Instagram, Right? Uh, you'll hate the other nine. And you say, hey, I don't look like that. Your camera lies. Oh, yeah, it's the camera that's lying, right? Um, this is the self-deception that all of us live under. We see ourselves in a very carefully manicured way as we shape an image of ourselves that we want to believe in. Well, Wangering goes on and he says this. Mirrors that hide nothing hurt me. They reveal an ugliness I'd rather deny. My wife is such a mirror. When I have sinned against her, 
My sin appears in the suffering of her face. Her tears reflect with terrible accuracy my selfishness, myself. But I hate the sight. And the same selfishness I see now makes me look away. Stop crying, I command, as though the mirror were the fault. I just leave the room, walk away. Oh, what a coward I am, and what a fool. Only when I have the courage fully to look clearly, to know myself, even the evil of myself, will I admit my need for healing. What honesty, huh? Wangren offers us an interesting perspective. He says, basically, everything that you come near, everything that you touch, everything that you influence becomes a mirror to your soul that reflects back to you what you are on the inside. And under that perspective of our lives, our world is filled with these kind of mirrors, aren't they? That reveal the brokenness inside all of us. Our struggles with relationships, our poor choices, our moments of shame and regret, they're all mirrors that reflect what we are on the inside. And our natural reaction to these disturbing images, these reflections of ourselves, is to look away in denial or to shift the blame and accuse others. The truth is, none of us are very good at staring at these images honestly and seeing what we're really like on the inside. In John chapter 16, it records, as I said in last week's sermon, Jesus' final conversation with his disciples before he would go to the cross. And he tells them that he is going to leave them soon and return to his father. And he sees the devastated look on their faces when he tells them this. He says, I'm going away for good. In John chapter 16, verse 6 to 7, Jesus says this, Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus says something remarkable. He says, it's actually better that I go away. Because when I go away, I am going to send you the Holy Spirit, what he calls the counselor, to come to you. Now, I'll be honest with you. These words of Jesus have always bothered me. It feels like the kind of hollow and lame comfort that parents try to offer their children when they see that their kids are really devastated or sad about something, right? It's like when a child's pet fish dies. Don't be sad, Sally. I'm sure Goldie will be with all the other fish in heaven, with all of her friends. You know, we just have to flush her down the toilet to send her to that better place, right? You know, I always thought like this. I would much rather have Jesus in the flesh than to have this invisible Holy Spirit that I cannot see. I don't even see those things as equal. If I had the choice, I would much rather have Jesus by my side in the flesh. What is Jesus saying? It's better that I leave you and send you my spirit. Well, he gives the reason why the spirit is better. In the very next verse, verse 8, 
He says, when he comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, think about it this way. Even after three years of continually preaching the message of the gospel of repentance and forgiveness, not even Jesus' closest disciples got the message, right? I mean, even after Peter is standing at the empty tomb, he's literally looking and going, I don't get it. I don't know what's happening here. The gospels record dozens of times when Jesus predicted his death before the fact. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. I mean, what is there not to get in this, right? Luke chapter 18, verse 31 to 33. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. But the truth is this. Even after the resurrection, even his closest followers were still clueless. Why? Because they couldn't understand the need for the cross. Because they couldn't understand their need for forgiveness. But here's the amazing thing. After Jesus ascends to heaven, on that day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down on Jerusalem. And during that feast of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, it's recorded that Peter preaches a sermon in front of, in front of thousands of people. In Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Peter says to them, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, I want to tell you, if you read the whole sermon, Peter does not deliver what we would call today a seeker-sensitive sermon, all right? He basically tells them, you guys killed Jesus. You nailed the Son of God to a cross. And here is the thing, is this is how that crowd responded that day. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You see, these same people who days earlier were shouting to Pilate, crucify him, crucify him, were now cut to the heart And filled with remorse. These once clueless and spiritually blind people now finally understood what Jesus came to do. These proud and stubborn people were now brokenhearted and repentant. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. We're told that in response to Peter's sermon, over 3,000 people repented. And followed Christ that day. That's what Jesus meant when he said, it's better that I leave you. Because when I go, I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is going to come and convict you of sins. 
and will bring you to a place of repentance and surrendering your life to me. The most important mirror in our lives is the cross of Jesus Christ. Walter Wongren again says this, The passion of Christ, His suffering, and His death is a mirror. It is myself in my extremist truth, my sinful self. The death He died reflects a selfishness so extreme that by it I was divorced from God and life and light completely. That what I see reflected in the mirror of Christ, that's what I see reflected in the mirror of Christ's crucifixion. My death, my rightful punishment, my sin, and its just consequences. The great prophet Isaiah puts it like this, talking about what Christ did for us in the cross, in the message translation by Eugene Peterson, Isaiah 53, verse 3 to 5. He was looked down on and passed over. A man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum. But the fact is it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him. Our sins. He took the punishment and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we got healed. You see, the cross as a mirror reflects not only the depth of our sin, but the greater depth of God's love for us. That's why we celebrate on this Easter day rather than wallowing in despair. It's a day of joy and celebration. Rebecca Pippert says, In the cross, God demonstrates the deepest law of acceptance. For to be convinced that I have been accepted, I must be convinced that I have been accepted at my worst. This is the greatest gift an intimate relationship can offer. To know that we have been accepted and forgiven in the full knowledge of who we are, an even greater knowledge than we have about ourselves. This is what the cross offers. This is the message of the gospel, that on the cross, God exposes our dirtiest secrets that we try to cover up and deny. But rather than condemning us for that sin, he placed the punishment that we deserved on his son, Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the gospel, that on the cross, Jesus took our place and received the punishment that we deserve. And through his resurrection, gives us eternal life if we put our trust in him. Let me just close with this, and we'll go into communion. D.A. Carson illustrates this truth uh, by imagining a conversation between two Jews in the days of Moses. Um, During that time, Israel was under slavery to Egypt. God had sent his servant Moses to set the people free. And despite all of these punishments and warnings to to Egypt, to Pharaoh, 
In his stubbornness, Pharaoh would not relent and would not let God's people go. And so in this final act of deliverance for his people, this is what God said is, I'm going to sweep over this land. And I'm basically going to kill every firstborn male in every household in this country. Until finally, Pharaoh, you will let my people go. But this is what he tells Moses to tell his people. He says, every Jewish family must find a lamb. You must slaughter it. And with that lamb, you are to prepare a final meal that you're going to eat as slaves here in Egypt. And he says, before you sit down for that meal, you're supposed to take the blood of that lamb and you're supposed to paint it on the doorposts of your house. When I come over the land of Egypt tonight at midnight to take the life of every firstborn, if your house has that blood of that lamb painted on the doorpost, I will pass over your house and spare you. And listen to what Carson has to say about that picture of Passover and what it pictures about Jesus Christ. By the name of Smith and Brown, remarkably Jewish names. (laughs) The day before the first Passover, having a little discussion in the land of Goshen, And Smith says to Brown, boy, are you a little nervous about what's going to happen tonight? Brown says, well, God told us what to do through his servant Moses. You don't have to be nervous. Haven't you slaughtered the the lamb and daubed the two doorposts with blood, put blood on the lintel? Haven't you you done that? You're all ready and packed to go? You're going to eat the, the whole Passover meal with your family? Of course I've done that. I'm not stupid. But it's still pretty scary. When you think of all the things that have happened around here recently, you know, flies and river turning to blood, and it's pretty awful. And, and, and now there's a threat of the firstborn being killed, you know? It's all right for you. you got three sons. I've only got one. And I love my Charlie, and, 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 and the angel of death is passing through tonight. You, you, you know? I, I know what, what God says. I've put the blood there, but... But it's pretty scary. I'll be glad when this night is over. And the other one responds, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. That night, the angel of death swept through the land. Which one lost his son? And the answer, of course, is neither. Because death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercised. But on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. That's what silences the accuser. The blood silences the accuser of the brothers as he accuses us before God. He silences our consciences when he accuses us directly. 
How many times do we writhe in agony asking if God can ever love us enough, if God can ever care for us enough after we've done such stupid, sinful, rebellious things, after being Christians for 40 years? What are you going to say? Well, you know, God, I I tried hard, you know. I did did my best. It It was a bad moment. No, 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 no. I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. We overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. There is the ground of all human assurance before God. There is the ground of our faith. Not guaranteeing intensity of faith, so fickle are we. It's not the intensity of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves. They overcome him on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray. I think that's really, in its essence, the wonder and the beauty and the glory of the Easter message. I think there's so many ways to mischaracterize Christianity as God from on high issuing a set of rules that he expects us to obey. And those who do the best job following these rules are the ones who get to go to heaven. And that couldn't be further from the truth. It's interesting, this picture that Carson paints of two Jews on that first Passover, getting ready for that angel of death to pass over the land of Egypt. And one of them says, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. And the other says, I don't know, man. I only have one son. You have three. And in light of everything that's happened these days, I'm kind of terrified. The second guy has a weaker, stuttering faith. And yet, both of their sons were spared that day because as Carson says, the ground of their assurance lies not in the intensity of their faith, but in the object of that faith, which was the blood. And that blood of the lamb on every doorpost in every Jewish house that day was a foreshadowing of the blood that Jesus would shed for us. And I wonder for us who are here in this room today, how many of us might sort of see the deepest problems in our life as existing out there like the Jews of Jesus' day. It's the Romans. It's our religious leaders. Maybe for you, it's it's my in-laws. It's my parents. It's my spouse. If only those problems could be fixed, my life could be so much better. And Christ says, you know, The deepest problem in your life is not out there. It's right here inside your heart. That's the greatest work that I've come to do. And you know, I think the stubbornness and the pride of the human heart makes it pretty much impossible for us to come to a place like that unless there's the work of the Holy Spirit that softens our heart. And just as our brother Charlie testified of that work of the Spirit in his life, And it's what many of us in this room can testify to. I believe the Holy Spirit is here in this room right now. Maybe that Holy Spirit is convicting you. Say, what are you running away from? Do you really dare look honestly in that mirror of your soul and see what's reflecting back on you? And ultimately, the most important mirror that we need to look at 
is the mirror of the cross that shows us, as Wangaran says, in our extremist worst. And yet somehow in that mirror, we see reflected back on us, not condemnation, but acceptance and love. Because Christ took on himself what we could never earn in a million years by our own good efforts. So I want you to reflect on what the message of Easter is. It is that Christ has died, but he has risen again. And in his death and resurrection has bought for us eternal life if we would only surrender our lives to him. And I want to invite you this day to offer your life and surrender to him in that way. If you sense that that may be what God is prompting you to do this day, would you just offer a simple prayer of surrender to God, a prayer of faith that says, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe in your promises. I believe in what you have done on my behalf and put your trust in him this day. Just pray for a few minutes and our worship team will lead us in a song of response before we all come to this table and receive from the body and the blood of Jesus Christ.